Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I'm really excited to talk to David Rodnitsky today. What's up, David? How are you? Hey, Ty. Always good to talk to you. I think we've probably known each other for about 15 years at this point. Yeah, it sounds about right. It's been kind of awesome to to continue to stay in touch and we got a chance to collaborate, you know, years ago and you've you've obviously done some awesome things. I think our audience will be really excited to talk about some of the learnings that you can share and in, in your evolution in performance marketing. Heck yeah. Yeah, what's the latest? What's been new? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh I guess gainfully retired from um, running an agency, and I'm now sort of going back to my con- early consulting days and trying to uh, find a way to to be a one man show. So I love it. A little different. I mean, I don't have an EA anymore, and I got to schedule my own meetings. But you know, there's a lot of freedom too. I get to I get to do yoga every day and spend time with my family, so I can't really complain. I love that. It's so cool. I'm excited to dive into all of it. And and props on the yoga. I think it's uh, one of the best things you can do. I don't I don't do enough of it. So for folks out there that don't know, maybe would love to dive into how did you get into? Maybe just give us your background because you have a really interesting story. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go back to even the 1990s. That's how old I am. I graduated from law school in 1999 from the University of Iowa, and I came out to the Bay Area basically because I had a my best friend was living here and because there were mountains and I had no other plan other than just hang out with my best friend near mountains. And I got lucky um, in 2000 and there was, this was the first dot-com boom and there were companies that were just hiring warm bodies essentially. And there was a dot-com called rentals.com, which was doing property management stuff. And they hired me to be manager of strategy, which meant pretty much absolutely nothing. It just meant like do research papers and do do analysis of the market, competitive research and stuff. And so I was doing all that and their director of marketing resigned and there was no one to do marketing. And these guys were paying $25,000 a month to a brand agency and $25,000 a month to a PR agency. And they hadn't even launched a product yet. And so I kind of sat down and I looked at this and I was like, this is this can't be right. There's gotta be something better than $50,000 a month to these two agencies. And so I discovered a little company in uh, Pasadena, California called goto.net, I believe is what it was called. And the, the concept that they were bringing to the market was rather than pay for an impression or pay for you know a sponsorship, you pay per click. And so they had this search engine where you could go in and you could type in any word and you could say, I want to buy the word house for rent or apartment for rent. And it might be three or four cents a click. And so I took this $50,000 budget and I just threw it all into to goto basically. And again, this was the very early, early days of pay-per-click advertising. And, you know, literally we were paying for the, the, the most expensive terms out there were maybe 30 or 40 cents, like for the word like personal injury lawyer or something like that. That company went belly up um, when the dot-com boom became a bust. And I was lucky enough to... Um, Shocker. 
What's that? Yeah, shocker. I know. I mean, they they raised uh, $28 million from Sequoia and SoftBank, which, you know, was, was a big deal. And they weren't able to ever mm-hmm. sort of really release a product or do much of anything, to be honest with you. So I, I ended up sort of having my exposure to, to what was later to become search engine marketing at that company. And over the next eight years, I worked at a variety of startups in Silicon Valley. I worked at a company called Fine Law, which is a legal website. Worked at a company called Adteractive, which did lead generation. And then I worked at a company called Mercantilla, which did dropship uh, e-commerce similar to Wayfair. And when I was at Mercantilla, this was 2007. I had now been working at companies for seven years, progressively getting more experience in online marketing generally and search engine marketing particularly. And at, at Mercantilla, um, when we were just talking offline about kids, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first son. I was traveling to India once a quarter to manage a team, and I just wasn't happy at the company for a variety of reasons. So in January of 2008, I quit and just said, I'm going to do something else. And uh, my son was born in February of 2008, so I quit a month before my son was born. I went down to a coffee shop in Pacifica, California, where I was living, and I just kind of just let people know I'm not working for other people anymore. I'm just trying to figure out what's next. And I had a bunch of different ideas for what I was going to build. Yeah, I, I literally, I launched like a site about wrinkle cream that was a basically affiliate lead gen site. And uh, I had a, an idea around you know, a food website, a bunch of ideas. Um, but then I got, people kept calling me and saying, can you help with search engine marketing at my company? And I, I kind of followed the advice of a friend of mine, which was, you know, if people are knocking down your door saying they want to give you money for something that maybe you should at least look into it. And so I did. And I started offering SEM consulting, and I, it, it was it was a, it was kind of bad timing in the sense that it was the Great Recession. It was that moment in two thousand eight where the mortgage industry collapsed, and there were a lot of unemployed people, and companies weren't mm-hmm. spending money. But I found that I was I guess I was charging such a little amount of money that a lot of these companies were like, I'd rather just hire David for two thousand bucks a month than have to pay for a full time employee. That's awesome. I started doing that uh, initially as an individual consultant, and then I realized that I had too much work to just do myself, and I brought in a partner, and then, you know, we were able to hire a couple people. We got a small office. We went from a coffee shop to a Regis temporary office to a 600 square foot office, and then a thousand square foot office. And then, along the way, we realized that um, to win bigger clients, we needed to offer more than just search engine marketing. So we hired experts in search engine optimization and in social media, paid social media video advertising, mobile advertising, display advertising, analytics, conversion rate optimization, marketing strategy. We even did some affiliate, believe it or not, Ty. I know that's one of your areas of expertise. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I can't believe it. I know. It's shocking. I can't believe it. I mean, inter- interlopers coming into the field with, you know, with you little didn't knowledge. ask me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're jack of all trades. All right. You know, sometimes they say a jack of all trades is a master of none, but I, we, we tried to hire experts yep. in each of these areas. And, um, you know, we grew the business. And so, um, you know, I can, we can talk separately about how we ended up selling the, the business and exiting. But yeah, before we, we, we got up to at, at our height, we were at about 500 people uh, managing about wow. two or th- I think close to $3 billion of media spend for clients. So it's an amazing accomplishment. That's the yada, yada, yada story of, <laughs> at the end of the, <laughs> of the growth story. David, it's awesome to hear your progress. It was awesome to to witness your growth. I mean, how, coffee shop and a one man show to 500 employees and billions managed is just is just unbelievable. What were some of the 
aha moments you had along that way? I know we've kind of talked about it and you've written some really interesting things about your journey with that. Like what were some of the ahas that you like to kind of instill on folks and, and leaders and practitioners? A bunch of things. I mean, I think number one is, you know, the importance of culture and not just um, saying that you care about culture, but really living a culture. So one of the things that we did was we really were trying to be really deliberate about what we defined as our core values and also what, what we defined as our core promises to the team. So to give you an example, a couple examples, one was we really instilled in the team, what are the core values? I mean, we, we asked people to sort of memorize them and to think about everything they did at the company from the lens of core values. So we, we let people know that you were going to be promoted, uh, hired, and fired based on whether you lived those core values. You know, we also had this concept of core promises to the team. So it's not just about the values that we care about, but what can you expect as a team member? And so we tried to live our, live those core promises very clearly as well. So as an example, mm-hmm. you know, one of our core promises was, was we don't work with jerks, also known as the no asshole rule. rule. We had a couple instances where we had, uh, in particular with clients, and if you work in a service business, you're, in, you're inevitably going to work with people who are not respectful of the team, who treat you as a servant instead of a partner. And um, we had some situations with some really big clients who were treating our team like like they were servants. And we you know, talked to the client, gave them a chance to improve, and they didn't improve, and we fired them. And you know, I think that as a general lesson around growing the business, I mean, we were always trying to think about outcomes measured in years and not in quarters. And inevitably, when you fire one of your biggest clients, you're going to have a bad quarter. <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to see a reduction in your, in your growth. And, you know, you may have a hard time hitting your target goal, margin, margin goals. But in the long term, you keep your people happy. So that's something that was pretty important to us. You know, I think another thing, and I, I've been sort of going through and I've been writing all this down on my own newsletter, just trying to remember the things that I think were important to us. But there's a book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. And um, I literally can only remember one of the 22 laws. The other ones are very good as well. I just don't remember them. But the law that I remember is if you can't be number one in a category, create a category you can be number one in. And so when I started 3Q, I looked around and I said, like, what is, where is it possible for me to be a leader, for me to be number one? And I was like, well, I'm not going to be the number one agency. I'm not going to be the number one agency in North America. I won't be the number one digital agency. Probably wouldn't be the, won't be the number one SCM agency. I think we actually probably did get to that point at some point. But then I said, you know, what I have experience in is tech Silicon Valley startups. And I could probably say that I'm the number one agency helping Silicon Valley startups. And so I sort of set that as my goal. And then I went about creating a marketing strategy to achieve that goal. So I did some of the things that you would sort of every agency does, you know, just network a lot, go to networking events, get connected through friends, have lunch with marketers in Silicon Valley. I had lunch with a lot of investors, venture capitalists. You know, we hosted local events. We had, um, a client summit where we invited prospects as well. We did it at the Giants ballpark a couple times. We did the 49ers ballpark. We brought in people like Barry Bonds and Jerry, Jerry Rice to shake hands and have that local flavor. And then we even did some things that were kind of crazy. We did a, a billboard campaign on Highway 101 in Silicon Valley, which mostly you see billboards for Apple and Google and 
you know, Snowflake and there's little 3Q Digital <laughs> on the billboard. We did a campaign on NPR uh, Marketplace locally. So we just kind of tried to triangulate around like my, my goal was that some start, startup marketing director would go and talk to their friends and say, who should, who should I hire for, for online marketing? And, and they should say 3Q Digital and then she'd go to some message board and she'd see 3Q Digital and then she'd ask her investor and they'd say 3Q Digital and then she'd drive down 101 and see 3Q Digital. And, it was at, and, and that was at the point where I was like, well, if that's happened, then you know, we did have these situations where invest, a um, potential client would call us up and basically say, I don't need the sales pitch. I've been told you guys are the guys. Just tell me how much it's going to cost and let's get started. And we would sign a contract within a day. So I've got, I've got millions of other tips, <laughs> but those are two that kind of come to mind as like sort of things that, that I think were, was, were pretty helpful in sort of helping us scale. That's awesome. I love that. How did you kind of stay on top of the ever-changing game while managing people, tech, clients? As you kind of referenced earlier, you know, you and I know like channels rise and fall and there's is a constant like race to address new tactics and strategies. Like how do you find, how did you manage that in your growth at 3Q? Yeah, I mean, on one level, I think I was just a voracious learner. So I was just constantly reading everything I could. I mean, I used to, back when like your My Yahoo page was like the place that you went to get all your news feeds or RSS feeds, I had 30 marketing news feeds. And every morning I was reading every single one, search engine land, search engine journal, you know, you name it. I had Brad Geddes. I mean, all these guys who are like the providing great information about the, the, the space. I was reading everything I could. The other thing that I did was I kind of had an adage in my head, which was when I heard something from a client, two or three, two or three different clients telling me the same thing, that was probably a sign that it's something we should invest in. And so, you know, case in point, I mean, like, you know, in around 2011 or 12, I had started having more and more clients say, hey, you guys offer Google SEM. That's great. But what about Facebook? And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's not, it's not in my wheelhouse but I should look into it. And so, you know, I realized that and in re- researching it, that this was going to be a major opportunity. And so we went out and we found the best expert we could externally who had already been doing it. And we created a practice. Awesome. So that's, I mean, I think the, the number one way that we sort of identified where to grow. I would also say that, I mean, the flip side of that, I guess the negative side, if you will, is as we scale the business, and this is common for almost every agency, as you scale, you start to take on bigger clients and bigger clients um, typically want one throat to choke. And so, and it's, and it's some of it's like, uh, you could say it's like big company laziness or whatever, but some of it's just practicality. Like if you're managing a $500 million budget and you've got 20 different channels and 10 different softwares, you don't have time to have 30 meetings a week with your vendors. So you naturally just move towards as few as you can. And so we lost a couple of deals where we were doing incredible work on the, let's say the SEM stuff for a client, but some big agency came in and the client would even say to us, like, look, we know they're not going to be as good as you are at SEM, but I just can't have all these meetings. I can't manage all these people. So we're going with the big client, big agency. So that was also a forcing function for us as well. Sort of realizing that like, I don't ever want to be in a situation where I provide superior results and I lose because of a reason outside of those results. And so that made, that made us change some things and go after some of these additional channels. How did you continue to maintain the quality of that, that expertise? It seems like there was a, there was something that was definitely part of it. Um, the results were there. 
what was the kind of somewhat of the how behind that in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, I um, I've always admired the Netflix culture deck, deck, the original one. One of the things they say in that deck is um, above average performers des- deserve above average compensation. Adequate performers deserve a generous severance package. And it feels kind of cruel, but it really is, I think, crucial because I think the lesson that that I've taken away from managing people is that A players want to work with A players, number one, and that B players, you know, not only do the A players leave, but they oftentimes the A players who, who stay around have to do the work of the B players. You know, we had a guy on our team who was a, one of our senior leaders who was a former semi-professional soccer player. And we were having a debate one day about A versus B players. He said to me, he said, you know what? I think it's okay to have some B players because maybe they're, they're just nice people and, you know, they get along well with clients and I think it's good. And I said, you know, you're a former soccer player. Let me just ask you from a soccer perspective, if there's 11 people on the field and nine of them are A players and two of them are B players, what happens? He goes, oh, well, the A players have to cover for the B players and they can't play their positions they're intended to play. And I said, that's exactly the problem. So we were pretty, I guess, pretty relentless about, first of all, promoting great people and really just trying to be proactive about giving them raises and giving them responsibility, not waiting until they sort of their annual review necessarily, just saying, look, you're a superstar, we're gonna keep pushing you. And then also for people who weren't, for whatever reason, working out, helping them find an opportunity somewhere else. I would also say related to that, that I um, really believe in the notion of trying to hire people smarter than you. You know, I just, I try not to have any ego and I, I, loved, I loved it when after a couple of years in the business, there were numerous people on the team who knew way more about online marketing than I did. And I think at our, at our height, as we scaled, I mean, we had, I remember we had like 20 or 30 people on the team who had been with us for at least seven or eight years. We may, we may still, I don't, I don't know. It's awesome. And, you know, you only keep those people by, again, giving them lots of opportunity, um, surrounding them with A players and creating a great culture that they are going to want to show up to, to work for. I love it. That's awesome. How did some of the, um, maybe transitioning a little bit, obviously there's so many learnings, you know, in building up something so large, how did kind of your new opportunity come about? Maybe you can help, you know, fill in that transition and, and kind of what you're working on now. Cause it's, it sounds obviously fascinating and, um, you've already written a book, a lot, a lot of things have happened and have you've achieved, but maybe share a little bit about that. Some of those ahas that led to the transition into what you're what you're working on now? Yeah. I mean, I think when I started the business, I really just mainly just didn't want to work for someone else because I, I had found that I kind of lose the political battles when I'm an employee and I hate the politics and I lose. That's a bad combination. So I really just started, you know, just because I was like, if I'm the boss, at least, at least I can control the politics. At least, you know, I can sort of, in in the case of a tie, I win. Yep. But as we scaled, you know, by 2014, we were up to about 150 employees and we started getting inquiries from third parties who wanted to, to buy us. You know, for me, I never thought I'd be in this situation, but suddenly I had this, this question, which is, do I just keep growing this thing and sort of doubling down and, you know, betting it all on, on red and see if I can turn this into a billion dollar company, or do I take some risk off the table to risk the risk myself and work, find a partner to sell the business to. And I felt like I'm sort of a conservative guy. I guess I was, I was sort of raised in middle-class 
Midwestern roots. And I was like, if I can find a partner that does three things, um, does what's best for employees, does what's best for clients, and does what's what's best for shareholders, I think that it's it's a good time for me to to make a move. So I ended up in 2015 selling the company. I did not know after when I sold the company that about two or two and a half years after we sold it, the company that bought us decided for a variety of reasons that they needed to sell us. And um, they were not able to find a, a really good offer. So we ended up coming in as a management team and buying the company back from the company that sold us. And then a year after that, we got even more interest from, from acquirers. And we did another transaction where we sold to a couple of private equity firms. And then a year after that, or actually, I guess it was three years after that, we ended up um, selling to a large Dutch agency called Dept. So from about 2014 to 2022, I was involved in, in the purchase of one agency and the sale of or my own agency three times and learned a ton along the way. Mergers and acquisitions is its own language, its own rule set. You know, it's like nothing that you've ever experienced as a founder. And so when I finally sort of left 3Q and I, I looked back and I said, you know, I mean, obviously I think I can provide guidance to agency founders about an agency and founders in general about how to scale a business. But the area that I thought was most interesting and that is maybe lacking the most is providing guidance around this mergers and acquisition process. And what I find so interesting is that for an agency founder, a sale of their business is the biggest financial transaction of their life. And it's also a very emotional transaction. I mean, it's one way to think about selling your business is you're selling your purpose and your identity for cash. And I think a lot of people don't really think about that. So it's a, it's, it can be a big windfall financially, but it can also be emotionally very challenging. And for most founders, it's the only time in their life they'll do that. And they're on the other side of the transaction are people who have done this, in some cases, dozens of times. And so you're at a disadvantage, both in terms of a lack of knowledge and a lack of experience. And so I'm trying to start a consulting firm that really sits, stands with the founder, puts, kind of puts myself in their shoes. And as they go through this process, helps them sort of decide on these really important questions. Do I even want to sell? How much do I need to be happy? Does this buyer represent my core values and will it be a successful transaction? Do I want to stay with the company after it, after it sells? If I don't want to stay, what do I want to do next? How do I transition out of the business? There's just, I think I actually created a list and I think I came up with like 112 questions that you really need to answer while you're going through the M&A process. Someday I'll publish that in a blog post or something. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, I think it's a, it's a role that doesn't currently exist. There are people who are investment bankers whose job is to sell your business. There's mergers and acquisition attorneys whose job is to make sure that you're protected when you sign a contract. But there's not really that founder whisperer role. And so I'm, I'm creating something new. Uh, we'll see over the next couple of months whether I'm, I'm onto something or I'm just uh, crazy and, and people don't need it. I love it. I think there's definitely a, a great, great need and opportunity. And like you said, you've been there, you've been through it so many times, and there's all these other parties that have either done it a ton on the other side or kind of looking at it from more of a legal or contractual view. And so to think about it holistically and, and take into consideration the core values and financials and what's best for the founders is really, I think, compelling. What's the biggest mistake you see in founders thinking through this or navigating this situation and maybe what's the biggest uh, trap or, or thing that you think you might want to caution folks to avoid? I think that it probably all comes down to money in different ways. Number one is I think that 
founders don't really think about what, as I said before, do I want to sit, trade identity and purpose for money? And then how much money is, is that trade worth? And so they sort of go into the M&A process, maybe with sort of a half-baked perspective of, well, I'll, I'll just go through this process. I'll just see how much money people are offering me and maybe it'll work for me, maybe it won't. And it's a, it's a ton of time and it's a ton of commitment and it's a huge emotional decision. And so I think that like, um, there are, for a lot of founders, the answer is that you shouldn't sell now. And for some founders, it's you should never sell. That, you know, your life will be negatively affected even if you have all this money in the bank. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is when people are choosing the partner that they're going to sell to, there also is the money factor can become very overwhelming. I mean, you might have one company offering you $10 million, one company offering you $8 million, and one company offering you $6 million. And the the obvious knee-jerk reaction is, well, let's go for the most expensive seller. But this isn't like selling a, a used you know iPhone on eBay. I mean, it's there's so much more that goes into it because you're going to, in most cases, when you sell, you're not just, you're usually, the, the buyer wants you to stay around for anywhere from two to four years afterwards. So if you sell to someone who turns out to be a complete jerk, you've got four years of your life that you're going to spend in misery. And there's also the chance that you sell to a, a jerk that they do everything they can to prevent you from getting your full payment. So it's a lot of that sort of just really trying to step back and look at the 30,000 foot perspective on what you want in life and what you want to do in the, in the short term and the long term that I think people don't really pay attention to. Obviously on the legal side, there's all sorts of very important clauses that you have to be careful about. You know, if you've seen the movie, um, the social network, there's that scene where Eduardo Severin gets told by the lawyers that his, I don't remember the exact number. It was like his 30% stake has been reduced to three tenths of a percent or something. It's like they like reduced his valuation by like a thousand times. You know, at the end of the day, I, I, I tell people, you all you can do is do a deal with people you trust and work with great lawyers. But you never know when you can do a deal with someone that you really love. And then that person gets fired three months later and a new person comes in and says, oh, I'm not honoring this commitment. So having a legal document that really buttons up every scenario I like the phrase, uh, trust in Allah, but watch your camels. You know, that's really crucial and, uh, and can really trip people up. That's a, it's a great phrase. It's a great phrase. Yeah. Are there things that you've seen that have worked well in the diligence process for founders where there's a little bit of that validation or getting to know period, not to get too in the weeds, but it sounds like that a cultural fit and that alignment and that trust is pretty paramount in the process to determine if this makes sense for a team to to sell or a founder to sell. What's the anything you found that can work there to to get to that answer as opposed to rolling the dice and just judging off of a couple of chats? Yeah, a couple of things I would say is first of all, I think due diligence on the potential buyer is really important, and I would say in particular trying to do your own due diligence and not just do not just looking at whatever the buyer has given you. So to give you an example, one of our sales, we were on the one yard line to sell to a, a buyer. And I was pretty happy about everything I'd heard from the buyer and feel, felt like it was a good fit for the, for the business. But I decided to call a friend of mine who had sold his agency to the same buyer previously. And uh, I said, what was it like? He said, well, the buyer really cares about profit maximization. 
And so they told us that we couldn't do any training of our team because it wasn't a profit-driven activity. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is not a good sign. I mean, that's a, for many reasons, you know, you'll do a bad job with your clients, you'll lose team members. You know, it's not, it's not part of my ethos as a, as a founder. Mm-hmm. So because of that due diligence call, which obviously wasn't someone that the buyer had given to me, it's someone that I had done my own third-party digging and connecting the dots, we ended up saying no to that buyer and choosing a different path. Um, so that's that's one thing that I think is really important. The other thing I'll say, just is, it's kind of a legal issue, but you know, when you're selling signing a contract, the first stage really to formalizing a relationship with the buyer is to sign a letter of intent or an LOI. And the letter of intent is always non-binding. It's not something that you can point to in court as evidence that they promised me this or that. But it's a really good indication of how the buyer is going to treat you. So if there's something in the, so you should, I really recommend to people to be, to write very extensive letters of intent and really ask the tough questions at that point and not during the negotiation period when you're actually signing the contract. So you could say like, hey, I'm going to be a minority owner of this company. Are you going to sign up to have a fiduciary duty to protect my interests? You know, fiduciary means that you act as if someone else's money is your money. And if the buyer says, no, no way in heck, I, I'm, in, I'm in it. You know, you write a good contract and that's all that matters. <laughs> I'm not putting that in the LOI or the contract. You know, that's kind of a warning sign. You know, just seeing that the buyer is willing to sort of address your needs in that early stage in the LOI, even if it's non-binding, I think it can be a really good indicator of whether this is going to be someone who's going to truly partner with you or who somewhere down the road is going to do a little bit of a left turn that you didn't expect where it could be uh, advantageous to them and not to you. No, that's amazing. This is, I can see you know, so much value that you have to share and it's, it's pretty impressive. Similarly, you know, you, you even wrote a book and, and, that's kind of amazing. How did that kind of come to be? And, and is that kind of part of the new venture or how do you view that? So I, I was in a, um, I had a group of um, agency founders who had all, all of us had sold our agencies. So we were like the ex-founders club or meeting for Founders Anonymous yeah. or something like that. And um, I love it. And we were all talking and we were all sharing these stories on the phone about, you know, what had worked for our deals, what hadn't worked. And at one point I said, you know, guys, no one's written a book on this. Uh, don't you think it wouldn't, wouldn't it have been valuable when we were selling our agency if we had had a book that gave us the step-by-step, here's what to expect next, here's the pitfalls. And they all kind of shook their head in agreement. And one of the guys from the affiliate world, Bob Glazer, I said, you know, Bob, would you like to go in, with, in on this with me? And he said, well, I'm, I can't really write the book, but I'll be your sort of, your executive editor and I'll, I'll put in nice. you know, a lot of effort on the editing side. And I said, great. So I, I went about writing it. And then, uh, you know, Bob helped me edit it and we published it. And yeah, it's, it's connected to the consulting idea because I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I, I'm charging 50 bucks for the book. If you're serious about selling your agency or even your service business, 50 bucks seems like a no brainer. And it's a lot cheaper than hiring me. So it may be the case that, you know, in <laughs> nine out of 10 cases, people don't even need to hire me. They just read the book and that will get you enough of the way down the, the field that you'll be smart enough to make good decisions. But at the same time, I also know, um, as, as you do as well, that um, there's a difference between reading something and doing something. And, uh, you know, I could give you a manual to on how to fly a 747. You could study it for a month, but you're probably not going to then a month later go and try to fly it. So I think it's at the end of the day, I think it's a 
calling card for me. That's kind of the point of the book. I mean, I think people will read it and hopefully they'll say, this guy knows a lot about the agency world. And if I'm going to, m world, if I'm going to sell my business, I better talk to him. I love it. It sounds like you've had some awesome, you know, learnings and, you know, epiphanies through this journey. And yeah, I love the the reference you made previously. It sounds like some pretty cool world travel and adventures with you and your family. You share kind of what's been some of the best memories or trips or, or adventures that you guys have had? Yeah, I'd say two examples. One was when, when COVID happened, we were all locked inside for a while and, and I had really sort of stepped down as being the CEO. At that point, I was just kind of an advisor. So I had a lot of free time. So my younger son and I, in the course of about four months, once they opened up, let, let you leave your house, we did, I think, 38 parks, hiking parks in the Bay Area. So we... We literally sort of almost any park park on the map we did. We went to these like places where you can jump off limestone cliffs into into fresh water and awesome. My son's really into snakes, so we saw we did a lot of hikes where we found snakes. Then then earlier this year, actually, when I was for my younger son again, I've, I've done stuff with my older son as well, but my younger son's really an adventurer. We did a three week trip to uh, Africa. Again, his awesome. his interest is snakes, so we were able to go to the Kalahari Desert. And uh, on our third day there, we uh, they let us get out of the car and we walked up to a um, puff adder, which is the deadliest snake in Africa. And then we found out that behind it was a Mozambique spitting cobra, which can blind you from 27 feet away with their, its venom. So my son was on cloud nine that we were able to be within five feet of these two, uh, two of the 10 deadliest snakes in Africa. So that's a, I don't know, for many people that probably wow. is an, an upside to having more free time, but it is for my family. <laughs> it's not going to make everyone's bucket list, but for your son, he no. was like, I'm good. Some people uh, might but, kick the bucket after seeing the puff adder if they don't get out of the way. Literally. Yeah. We, uh, the things we do for our children. <laughs> yes. So you'll get, hopefully you'll get this opportunity too, Ty, as your child gets older, he'll have specific interests. He's just now crawling, so we're enjoying this period while we can. Keep him away from the the snakes, if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, it, we've kept our head on a swivel a few times in Texas, and I've had to. I bet. Get one, kill one already to to avoid it from from hanging out with my daughter. But we've been lucky so far. <laughs> well, I will say that I, I in the last couple of years I've learned a t- tremendous amount about snakes just from walking around with my son, and they're actually very. Uh, they really want to get out of your way. I mean, the rattlesnakes especially. Yeah. For sure. We see this summer, we've probably seen 50 rattlesnakes because we go on a trail where we always see them and they always yeah. act the same. I mean, they, they have no interest in being anywhere near humans. The only reason that they attack is if they're, if you, tr- if you mistakenly step on them or, or you're cornered, cornered. cornered yeah. And, yeah. We have a separate podcast about snakes. They've got a lot of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Part two will be all about snakes. I mean, when I, I was a kid, I feel like I was obsessed with reptiles as well. I don't know if, I didn't like, it wasn't a phase that lasted forever, but I had a lizard and was all about reading about different salamanders and snakes and, and all that. So they're pretty it's, cool. It's I have fun to say, for, you know, yeah, for sure. They're all cool. For sure. That's awesome. You know, you, you kind of lived and breathed the agency story, something back, back to that. What are some things that you think agencies are faced with now that maybe is different from a few, five, 10 years ago? There certainly seems to be more players in the space and it's it's gotten more sophistication. I'm curious to get your perspective on like what trends agencies need to be kind of pretty mindful of. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a blog post like eight years ago now called The Search Engine Marketing Agency is Dying and What to Do About It. 
And I just sort of tried to point to some trends that I thought were worrying to agencies. And you just mentioned some of them. I mean, number one is the number of competitors out there, the number of the number of people who are trained as experts in online marketing. I mean, there was a point, again, when you and I started, we're, we're old hands, you know, there were, mm-hmm. you would go to a conference, there'd be 200 people at the conference, and that was the entirety of people who had expertise on a subject, right? Yeah. I mean, if you went to Affiliate Summit in 2006, there were probably 200 people there, and now there's 20,000 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's just more competition. That's number one. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that, you know, prices continue to go up uh, for buying media or for really if it's not prices, it's competition. I mean, getting ranked in search engine optimization is harder. So the sort of the arbitrage opportunity is gone to some degree, and that just makes it harder to sort of justify your profit. I would say the third thing that is a trend is that the all the platforms are increasingly using uh, algorithms, AI, automation to, on the one hand, make things easier, but on the other hand, displace experts or the level of the playing field. So I think that, you know, my expertise is in SEM. I mean, there was a time in 2007 or six when I created methods to upload thousands of keywords a day, very granular keywords with with very precise landing pages and, and ad text and bids. And, you know, Google has simultaneously taken away a lot of that granularity and also, um, so so that gives the disadvantage for experts, and also just created automation so that average advertisers can do about as well as experts. So, one of the ways that I describe it when I think about paid media is when I started in the business to the, in the early two thousands, success was probably eighty percent human and twenty percent technology. Today, it's probably eighty percent technology and twenty percent human. And so, I still think that that means that there's a need for the humans, because at the end of the day, if you can have a 20% improvement in your performance, that's still valuable. But it's not what it was 20 years ago or 15 years ago where it was 80% humans and there were less humans doing it. So I guess if there's good news, I mean, I don't wanna be a complete Debbie Downer here. The, the, the good news is <laughs> that like digital marketing was under-indexed from 2000 to 2015, call it. People, a lot of advertisers were still stuck in in some cases, literally yellow pages and newspapers and magazines. I got, my, my mother-in-law gave me a subscription to a, a photography ma- magazine, a, a print subscription. And I, the thing is like 15 pages long now because there's no advertisements anymore. It's like no one buys print. So the good news is that everyone's woken up to the fact that digital marketing is, should be way more than 50% of your budget. So that means that agencies should continue to get pretty big budgets to, to spend. And I think we still have a ways to go before we've fully seen, yeah. you know, how much spend should be on digital marketing. It's going to keep growing. So that's, that's an upside. Yeah. Yeah. I think the rising tide lifts all boats and the industry getting better is certainly been something we've observed generally. So it's like, while there is some of that challenging you know, headwind conversation, which is real to address and prepare for. I think there's absolutely still a lot of opportunity in this space in terms of how many good practitioners there are, how many trusted practitioners there are versus how many new businesses are coming online, how many businesses are modernizing, how many businesses are expanding their digital marketing efforts daily. So totally hear you there. That's awesome. Are you seeing anything interesting in terms of uh, I think we talked about this a little bit, like 
folks that are building out in-house teams, folks that are at looking to external you know, source. I feel like that trend kind of continues to ebb and flow and depends who you talk to in the, in the situation. What are your observations there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always been a debate. You know, I think that there are advantages to both in-house and to agencies. I think the advantage to an in-house team is always that that team is going to know your business so much better than an agency. And so that means, you know, if you're a, whatever, if you're an online university, it means knowing that in January, people have New Year's resolutions that they they want to go back to school and you better have your budget ready and you better have that sort of mark messaging in place. I mean, you just know that intuitively if you're working in-house at a company and, and your agency may or may not know that. So I think it's important to, to leverage the strategic knowledge of in-house teams. By the same token, agencies typically have much more knowledge of channels. So an agency that's a search engine marketing agency is living and breathing Google advertising all day long. And they're usually doing it, every person in the agency is working with between, let's say, four and six clients. So they're learning faster, not only because they're spending more time in, this, in the system, but because they're getting inputs from multiple clients, what's working and what's not working. So to me, it's the answer is really always that it's a hybrid approach. You need some in-house people to keep the strategy uh, lamp burning bright, and you also need some agency people to constantly be cutting edge on the channels. I do think it's a little risky to sort of to do one or the other for that reason. I love that. I couldn't agree more. That's I mean, seeing where that's seen that work firsthand on so many ways in-house and as an agency. So I love that. You've dropped some good book recommendations here. You've got your own book, but what is uh, what's another maybe one or two book suggestions for for the audience? You've you've got some good ones. Yeah, I would say my standby is probably uh, Influence by Cialdini, Robert Cialdini. Influence: The Power of Persuasion. That book just uh, just really sort of blew my mind when I first read it about little things you can do to um, to influence behavior. And then I would say. A Seth Godin book I like a lot is Purple Cow, which um, kind of goes back to my notion of if you can't be number one in a category, create a category you can be number one in. And, you know, he just talks about how at some point, whatever, you know, in, in a crowded market, people can't differentiate. I mean, you've seen one cow, you've seen them all. And so mm-hmm. how do you become a purple cow so that people really sort of, you stand out? That's a good one. Love it. I think uh, there was a recent brand that I think went full all in on that. And I think they had uh i want to say it was one of the credit monitoring they had was a john cena and, a, and an actual purple cow in the ad i've heard of this book so i'll have to I'll have to finish it and you know he did a great when he when he first released it he sent it in a milk carton a purple milk oh, carton which again is just amazing. like living the brand it's like how many times if you if you receive a milk carton in the mail you're going to open it just a marketing whiz that's such a smart move it totally is. love it yeah David, I feel like we could talk on this this stuff for hours. You've dropped so much great advice and information. You know, for folks that are interested to learn more about you and you know some of the stuff that you're working on, where where can people find you? My website is Agentic Shift, A-G-E-N-T-I-C Shift.com. And you can reach me at David at Agentic Shift. And then not really I'm not really into X or uh, Instagram or anything like that, but I am on LinkedIn and I have a a newsletter that I published on LinkedIn and another one that I'm publishing through the Agentic Shift website. So love to connect with any of your listeners. Love it. Really appreciate you. Always a pleasure. It was an awesome conversation and look forward to more. Thank you, Ty. Always great to catch up with you. You too. Thanks, David.